Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. I imagine many of our listeners are still preoccupied with the admission scandal that came to light on March 12th. If so, hopefully you listened to our show from last week, which aired on March 21st, in which Beth, Ian, and I, um, all the hosts, we all got together and discussed it at length. Um, So remember that the good news is that the scandal impacted a tiny fraction of students at a tiny fraction of schools. Remember that there are over 3,000 colleges and universities in this country, and only a handful, literally a handful, were named in this case. And I was happy as a former admissions officer to see that no admission officers had been implicated in the scandal. So hopefully you're taking some comfort in that as well, that the process and the people who are in charge of most of the process um, are honest. And so the process itself, while it isn't perfect, the process itself is also an honest process. All right, so let's move on to today's show. For our second segment, I'm excited to have Kira Tyler, veteran of College Coach and the Brandeis University Admission Office. She and I will be discussing what's on many students' minds right now, which is, if you didn't get into your first choice college, what do you do now? And how do you choose from among your remaining choices? For our third segment, Sarah Calvert-Kubram, currently of College Coach and formerly of Lewis and Clark in Northeastern, will be joining me to discuss applying to an out-of-state public institution and how that might impact your process. But first, we'll be talking with Kathy Ruby, formerly of the St. Olaf College of Financial Aid, about college finance for older parents. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sally. Glad to be here. I'm glad to be here, too. And I am very curious about who's defined as older since I'm 50. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, you know, I imagine that you're going to be defining that for us at some point. So. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's just one way that this is a very uh, cheerful topic. Um, so, but I, I can see how it's an important topic. So maybe, maybe tell us why it is an important topic and, yeah, define for us what older means. All right. Well, <clears throat> this topic was actually prompted by a listener. So um, those when we ask you for questions, we mean it. Um, and this listener had actually asked some questions about older parents and how they're treated in the financial aid process. And so then we, we realized we couldn't answer the question in just a few minutes, so we decided to turn it into a full segment. So listeners, we do, <clears throat> we do pay attention. Um, and there are some special challenges and considerations, so we're going to get into that. Now, for purposes of this conversation, I think we're really talking about parents who might be um, 59 and a half when their child is in college. Um, and I know, I know 60 is the new 40, and I'm 55, so 59 and a half sounds very close. Um, I don't think you're old at 59 and a half, but based on various tax rules, um, 59 and a half is considered old enough to access various retirement accounts. So we're going to kind of go with that as we're talking about this topic. Um, and I thought it would be good to divide our conversation really into two categories. First, we're going to talk about the financial aid application process itself and how parents' information, how older parents' information might be considered. 
And then we'll wrap up by talking about financing um, and some special considerations there. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the process of applying for financial aid. Do older parents get any special consideration when the expected family contribution is calculated? Is there anything that that helps them? Is it good to be old in this process? <laughs> is it good to be oh, it's good to be old and wise, right? Yes. Well, so yes. a little a little bit actually. The formula does uh, give them a little bit of a break. So let's just refresh on what the expected family contribution is. So. Um, when a college determines your financial need, they uh, take their annual costs and they subtract this expected family contribution that's calculated based on information you complete on the FAFSA <clears throat> and sometimes on the CSS profile. Um, and so on the FAFSA, on the financial aid application, parents are actually asked to report the age of the older parent. And the reason that question is asked is that when you report your assets, so your savings and investments uh, on the financial aid form, a certain amount of those assets are just protected right off the bat. It's called the asset protection allowance. Um, And it's meant to represent, okay, this person needs to shelter a little bit of their um, savings because they're going to be retiring someday is sort of the principle behind it and that they have other expenses, other demands on those assets. So older parents get a a higher asset protection allowance, and that is because they're closer to retirement. Um, But it's actually not that much bigger. So for a 50-year-old parent, the asset protection allowance is about $22,000. And for an older parent who's 62 or older, different from our earlier definition, um, the the asset protection allowance is $33,000. So there's really only a difference of about $11,000 which would reduce your expected family contribution by maybe, you know, four to $6,000. So it's not a huge, huge number, um, but it's, it's there. Um, the other good thing, though, that happens on the FAFSA is that retirement accounts are not reported as assets. Um, and, and on the CSS profile, they're reported, but they're not counted. So assuming that older parents probably have more in retirement accounts than younger parents do, I guess that's, that's an advantage, too. Um, and then finally, I mean, if a, if a parent is older and retired, if we assume that their retirement income is lower than what their regular income was when they were working full-time, that helps with eligibility because the formula is, that calculates the ESC is really highly dependent on what your income is. So if your income is going to be lower when your kids are in college because you'll be retired, that's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's a good point. So should older parents just retire when their kid goes to college so they can get more money? Because <laughs> it's so much. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, I have heard that suggested before many times. And the answer is no, not necessarily. So just because your income is lower doesn't mean that you're going to get enough grant aid to make up for that lower income. So the grant aid you might get from a college is not going to dollar for dollar replace how much your income went down. You know, colleges use loans to meet need, and some colleges don't even meet need fully anyway. Um, So reducing your income by retiring to try to get more money, especially if you're not financially ready to retire, is really not a good strategy. Um, You know, what I say to families is, you know, you always have more money when you make more money, so you're not necessarily better off. Um, The other thing to remember is that the financial aid formula looks at income from two calendar years prior to the start of the academic year. 
So if your child's starting college in 19, in the 2019-20 school year, uh, the college is looking at 2017 income. So if you retire in 2019, the drop in income won't show up for two more years on a financial aid application. Um, and, you know, you can appeal to a college to say, oh, I'm retiring and my income is dropping. Could you take that into account instead of using my higher income from two years ago? And some colleges will look at that, but they'll really only look at that if you're either being forced to retire or you're on the older side of retirement age, um, or maybe you have medical issues that are forcing you to retire. So, you know, if you're a teacher in your late 50s who can retire, a college really probably is not going to consider that as an extenuating circumstance. They, they expect you to keep working or get another job to help pay for college because, because you're really not that old. <laughs> your late 50s, right? Um, Or mid to late 50s. No, no. (laughs) All right. So are there any disadvantages in the financial aid formula for older parents? Um, There aren't really any disadvantages, but it is important to know that when you do withdraw from retirement accounts, you know, 401ks, 403bs, IRAs, whether it's taxable income to you or not, it will show up as income on the financial aid application. Um, And that's to be expected, right? You're withdrawing that money to live on because you're retired. Um, but if you're planning to use retirement accounts to pay for college, uh, know that it will show up as income on your financial aid application two years later. Uh, you can appeal to a financial aid office to have that <clears throat> that income excluded from consideration. Some, some colleges will take that into account. And of course, you should really only be re- uh, withdrawing from retirement accounts to pay for college if you've planned for that. You don't want to deplete your retirement accounts um, in order to pay for college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely not. It's not helpful to your child if you're going to end up depending on them um, in your right. old age. So, um, you spent your retirement accounts on them. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. All right. How about um, financing and securing loans? Are there any special things that older parents should consider? Okay. Okay. So now we are going to get a little morbid. Um, I think the important thing when it comes to financing is you do want to understand the insurance provisions of whatever loans you're borrowing or co-signing to get your child through college. So federal loans, the federal direct parent loan or the PLUS loan, um, that does have an automatic discharge if the borrower or the student passes away or, or dies or becomes totally and permanently disabled. So it has insurance built in. Um, private loans that you co-sign or you borrow, uh, they may not have that insurance built in, so you have to read the fine print. Um, and if they don't have that built in, you'd want to make sure you have enough <clears throat> life insurance to cover that loan if something were to happen to you. Um, and then you also want to take a look. Some private loans, when you read the fine print, will also say that they will demand immediate repayment from the borrower if the co-signer dies. So you really want to make sure you've read that fine print. Um, Federal parent loans, when you think about repaying the loans that you've borrowed, they have extended repayment periods that can help make your payments more manageable, but of course, they'll cost you a lot more interest if you're trying to repay in retirement. Um, There's also an income-driven repayment plan available for the PLUS loan, which means they hold your payments uh, to about 20% of your discretionary income. Um, You'd have to federally consolidate your loans in order to use that. But because of how that payment plan, that in, it's called the income contingent repayment plan, is set up, that plan often doesn't do a very good job of making payments 
extremely manageable. So you have to be careful there. So this brings me to sort of the closing point here is whether you're borrowing using a home equity loan or a federal parent loan or your co-signed loans for your student, older parents really have to think even more carefully about how much they're borrowing. So make sure you've done the math and run the calculations and make sure you can afford to repay ideally before you retire um, because even younger parents really should be thinking about this. You don't want to be paying back educational loans when you're in retirement because it really can affect your quality of life. So that's right. that's my final bit of advice, that right. cheerful bit, right? <laughs> yeah, very cheerful. Yeah, and again, these loans do not go away. They're not, it's right. not like credit card debt. Yeah, there's no bankruptcy as an out, so. No, uh, no bankruptcy as an out, and they only go away um, in the event of death or total and permanent disability when we're talking about federal loans. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, thank you so much, Kathy. Now we'll be taking You're a welcome. short break, but when we return, I'll be talking with Kira Tyler about how to choose a college when you didn't get into your first choice. So please stick around. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, we'll now be talking to Kira Tyler about how to choose a college when you didn't get into your first choice. Welcome, Kira. Thanks, Sally. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Sure. Happy to be here. All right. So this is a time of year that students are hearing from colleges and they are facing a lot of decisions. Um, And I think the hardest one emotionally for students might be if that student doesn't get into their dream school or their first choice. Um, So I'm really happy to have you on to kind of help me address that. Like like when you're working with one of your students um, who doesn't get into their dream school and really had their heart set on it, you know, didn't just have kind of a mild preference, but really like had a dream school. Um, you know, what, what do you advise them to do? What kind of process do you advise them with? Yeah, of course. Um, this is really challenging and I really feel for students because, um, it doesn't have happen all the time, but there are some students who really latch on to a first choice, right? It becomes their everything. And, um, despite me trying to help them gain some perspective around it, um, cause I'm always worried that they'll be crushed if, uh, it doesn't work out. You know, sometimes it doesn't. And so the first thing that I try to walk them through is that, and their families, to be totally honest, is that it's okay to acknowledge the disappointment and for the student to be upset. I mean, it's a human emotion. Um, it might be the first time that they've really been told no for something they really want, and there's, there's like, no recourse. So I think acknowledging the disappointment and, um, you know, working through the upset feelings uh, would be my first set of advice. Mm-hmm. I absolutely think that's so important. I And I know, I want to be clear, too, that I know people don't want to hear this <laughs> at all, <laughs> but it is actually a valuable lesson. Yeah. To be told no and then realize that everything's going to be okay. And I know that we're getting ahead of ourselves, but um, but I do. But yeah, I think part of that process is acknowledging that it's something that you feel that you feel badly about. So yeah, I mean, you know, life and particularly as, as parents, I know that we're really wanting everything to work out for our children. And you know, I have a daughter and. She's not college-going age, but, you know, I mean, that's a natural emotion. And, you know, Sally, for the people that you love, like, you want things to work out. You know, you want them to get what they want, right? Um, but we don't want to shield them from disappointment or upset. Um, it's, there's a really valuable lesson to be learned. So I'm, I'm with you. I push hard on that, even though I know it's like people don't want to hear about that. But I also think um, upset is a totally normal human emotion and it's important that we not gloss over in an effort for our kids to feel better. Um, you know, you have to move through it. So in any case, mm-hmm. the next thing I would do is um, I would have them sit down and really think about what made the, uh, that particular school their quote unquote dream choice. Like what was so great about it? And I don't want to hear things that are like, you know, kind of loosey-goosey, like, well, the weather, or I like the football team. I mean, I want to hear, like, if you can get beyond those things, I want to hear slightly meatier, weightier things. Because I think if we can start to transition from the abstract into, okay, that's not a choice, but there are other choices, and let's see if we can figure out some commonalities that those you know, real-life choices might represent um, that are close to the dream choice, 
that's what we want to do. So I would, I would have them take a hard look at why was this school so dreamy and how can I replicate that? Mm-hmm. So kind of have them um, start, go, go ahead and mourn, but then like, let's be practical. Let's think through the process. Sorry, go ahead. That's right. Let's start to pick ourselves up. Um, mm-hmm. So after a student is able to do that, you know, let's get really tasky and start to figure out priorities and write them down. Um, I do think that this is something that uh, each family, particularly, you know, I mean, this is a big decision. And so I think this is something that a parent should have some participation in, um, but maybe separate from the adult, from the teen, right? So the student sits down, puts their priorities down on paper about what they're looking for out of their college experience. Hopefully the parents can also do so separately and then everybody can come together and sit down and see, is there a meeting of the minds about these priorities and in what schools that the student has as options can we find these concrete priorities? I think that mm-hmm. would be really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is interesting too is sometimes over um, over time, students' priorities change, mm-hmm. and they might yeah. not have sort of sat down and reevaluated their list, realizing that actually they want something a little different. Like I, I worked with one student who started out really wanting big schools, and then when he yeah. made those final visits he actually realized that he actually wanted the smaller colleges were appealing to him more. Now, now that he was finally imagining being there and not listening as much to what other people thought about each school. I agree. That's so true, Sally, because, you know, this is one of the reasons why if time and resources allow, we really want students to get on a couple of campuses because there's a big difference that happens between being in high school to then becoming and seeing yourself as a prospective student. And then that changes, too, from prospective student to accepted student. And so you're right. I mean, if, if, as a family or the student hasn't had the quiet time to be reflective and think about, okay, the last time I thought about this was, you know, April of my junior year, and now here I am, you know, 10, 11 months later, like, we want them to revisit. Um, and in light of their senior year and in light of maybe, you know, watching other people having gone through this process and seeing a couple of campuses, I think you're absolutely right that sometimes, you know, we want to pay attention to our priorities the same or have they changed? And if so, um, do they make sense still? Mm-hmm. And I think a really um, important... Oh, go ahead. No, please, Sally, go ahead. Well, I think a real, I mean, I mentioned visiting and I know that that's something that you always advise students to do. So let's talk a little bit about like what might be different on those visits, what they should pay attention to as an admitted student. That's right. So, um, you know, if the student has not visited their uh, true blue options or it's been a while. I mean, make a visit ASAP. This is not something, you know, students should never commit to a school without having stepped on campus. I feel really strongly about that. Um, but the way that it can feel different, particularly if you go to an accepted student event, is like, you know, I think you want to get a sense for the other students that you could possibly be classmates with. Now, we're not trying to look for a clone scenario. You know, hopefully it's you can have some appreciation for some diversity. Um, but just to be aware of who else you might be studying with. And do these people seem like we have perhaps some of the same values? Do we approach school in a similar way? You know, do these people seem like people I would be excited to form my college memories with and become uh, classmates and roommates with? So you want to look at that. And then you want to actually look at really tactical things. Like, 
what's the physical plant look like? Is this a place where, you know, I could consider myself to be comfortable and happy for four years? What's the surrounding area like? Um, you know, what's the probability of getting an internship uh, early on if that's what I want? Um, you know, I think you really you want to move away from the macro and start to really look at the micro, um, you know, um, opportunities that exist. That would be a really helpful transition um, on a visit uh, as an accepted student. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the ways, I mean, we have a couple minutes, so I think we could um, yeah. kind of dig into, like, what are some of the ways that they can start to understand the culture and whether they think they'd be happy there? You know, I think students automatically sure. kind of gravitate towards students who look like them, but I find that that doesn't always work. You know, people could be wearing the same clothes as you and have really different <laughs> interests, for example. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if an opportunity to do an overnight exists, I would do it. I think more times than not, it's really helpful, um, and, and students can kind of figure out, okay, I've seen it for longer than just three hours. Um, I've had the opportunity to, like, live in a dorm, eat, you know, cafeteria food. So I would encourage an overnight. Uh, the following morning, I would encourage visiting a classroom. Um, you know, these are things that, particularly in light of now seeing it as a real choice, may look different than even if a student did it uh, as a prospective student. So that's another thing I think gives you a good sense of culture. And then um, I also think if there's an opportunity to, like, attend some sort of campus event, maybe it's a play, maybe it's, um, you know, I don't know, maybe it's a comedy show put on by someone on campus. Like, But I think if there's a way to uh, insert yourself um, in some sort of community event on campus, that also is a nice way to get a sense for, like, huh, does this feel like I could be happy here? Like, I could thrive mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, an overnight is great because you kind of end up yeah. following your student host around. Um, you obviously have to be careful that, you know, mm-hmm. if you're an English major and your host is an engineering major, your coursework is going to be really different and there might be some different interests. But I find that usually the person down the hall in the door might have your potential major, might share some of your interests. So, so right. you know, the overnights, again, even if your exact host isn't exactly like you, you know, take advantage of it. Talk to other people. Yeah. And most student hosts, I know where I worked, and I'm sure where you worked, um, Sally, as well, were people who were excited about the school and sort of knew what their role was to, it's to be a steward for the university community. And so I think you're right. Like if they were hosting someone whose interests may have been different, uh, academic interests were different than their own past, that they could hook them up with a roommate to talk with or they could, you know, have them go uh, to a class with um, a sweet mate, uh, you know, that seemed to be more appropriate for their uh, liking. So I think you're right. Like the other thing I will say is that just like any experience, it's like a, it's like a tour guide um, or taking a college tour on a really cold, damp, rainy day where everything looks horrible. Um, and as a result, you walk away thinking the school's horrible. You know, we can't put all of our stock in what happens at an overnight or on a host. Um, I've had some students through my years that have had, like, not great overnights. It's just, they just didn't seem to click, but they felt like, however, this is a place where I'd be really happy So I think be honest about your expectation around the overnight and that you want to use it as one more piece of information to help put together your decision. Um, You know, I think that helps take some of the pressure off. And I also think it helps put some perspective around um, making good use of that time. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Don't go in expecting your host to be somebody who you'd want to be best friends with, but do exactly. use them as your tour guide around the school. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Any, um, any um, additional thoughts about this? Any last thoughts or anything that we haven't covered yet? Yeah. Have an open mind. Um, you know, be prepared to feel differently about this school, possibly, than you did the first time around. Or if you haven't visited because you didn't think it was going to be a real choice, be willing to go in with an open mind. And that's for the student, but it's also for the family, for the parents, or whoever trusted adults might be working with the student on this process. It's important that we give, if you're going to make the effort to visit a school and see it as an opportunity, you give it a real fair shake. Um, you know, and I would also say, give yourself a deadline to make a decision. Um, you know, you don't want to take it to the 11th hour, nor do you want to be that student that's like begging for, um, an extension, like a deadline's a deadline, give yourself a deadline, um, so that you can transition from accepted student to attending student with excitement and joy, uh, and getting ready for your next step. Mm-hmm. Completely agreed. For any reason other than money, because you're appealing aid, yeah, there should be yeah. no reason to ask for that extension. You're just torturing oh, yourself. Agreed. <laughs> oh, so. You really are. You're just putting off the inevitable. And at some point, you got to make a decision if you're going to go. So I exactly. agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. And it's not going to be a better decision. It's just going to be the same decision. Amen. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kira. Thanks, Sally. This was fun. Have a good rest of your day. You too. All right. Thanks. So we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, I'll be where I'll be welcoming Sarah Calvert Kubram to discuss applying to out-of-state public colleges or universities. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories, too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, 
positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Sally. All right, Sarah. So when we're looking at the various state um, institutions of higher education and the percentage they admit who are not residents of the state, like, you know, why are some one of the things that I always think is kind of interesting is that there's some states like the University of California system that has this really strict limit. And then you have a sense that other states are like very flexible and they're like, please apply, you know, like. I live in Connecticut, and recently the University of Maine has really been advertising to get people from out of state to apply. So this obviously varies dramatically um, from state to state. So what what's your sense of what goes into this decision-making process? You know, there are so many factors that, of course, vary from state to state, but I think a great example with those two states that you just mentioned of Maine versus California are the demographics, age, size of the population of the state. So, for instance, you have a state like California, which is so large. It has several major metropolitan areas. They have a large population of college-going students. There is a high demand for serving and providing four-year education experiences for their residents for the families that pay, pay taxes to California, etc. Um, in the state of Maine, I was actually reading up on this, and um, they have great university options, but they not only have a smaller population, but they also have a lot of people that are you know, older and aging, a lot of families that vacation there versus year-round residents, etc. And so for their university system, they are excited to expand access, invite students from other states, to keep a robust, active student population. Um, so a lot of that has to do with demographics, size, the number of students they are able to serve, et cetera. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So how do families kind of think about that? I mean, then there's going to be impacts for families and whether they go in-state or out-of-state. Yeah, you know, I I think that it's it's a little bit complicated because on one hand, if you are a family that lives in a state that you are excited about that state's university system and you've paid taxes to that state for years and years, 
you might think, geez, I, I want my student to have priority access to that state university system um, and see that perhaps they prioritize their state residence. Whereas if you live in a state where you don't necessarily have a state university you're as excited about or that fits the needs or wants of your student, you really might be eager for them to apply to a university in a different state. So there, there's a lot of variation there. And of course, we are a huge country. Um, so what that means is that the university systems vary quite a bit from state to state. And the emphasis on how many in-state residents versus out-of-state students that they try to attract and enroll can vary. Um, of course, parents are enticed by in-state tuition and by affordability. But then there are also factors of what programs are offered. Um, are there niche majors or programs or strengths of those universities that students are pursuing? So there are a lot of factors that make this a kind of complicated topic. Mm-hmm. I think the good news, though, and this is a little bit off topic, but I just want to put in a plug that I think for most states, the the uh, if not all states, the flagship institution uh, at the very least is going to have some really great offerings, you know, even in states oh, that are definitely. sort of less populated and, you know. Oh, definitely. And I, I think that uh, sometimes as humans and in a country that looks at rankings, et cetera, for good or for bad, we think, oh, you know, rankings are what matters. When honestly, there are fantastic educations available in every state at the flagship institutions, as well as other, you know, community college at four-year degree offering institutions. So there are definitely wonderful options in each state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So that being said, I know people are really curious about a lot of the well-known public institutions. Um, I've already mentioned the University of California system, which has some extremely popular options like UCLA and UC Berkeley. And I think UC San Diego these days as well, although there are many more great UCs than that. Um, You know, those are really popular with out-of-state students and they're very selective for in-state students as well. So kind of where do they fall in terms of the selectivity range and how does the University of California system in general deal with in-state versus out-of-state? Mm-hmm. No, so this is a, a great question, and it's quite timely. Um, in 2017, the state of California put forth some changes in the way they looked at um, the enrollment of their students who were California residents versus out-of-state. And what they started to really take note of is that, yes, they want to attract the best students, um, and that could be international students, California residents, students from other states in the United States, but they also have it in their core values and mission to try to make sure that eligible California residents have access to a four-year degree. Um, With that, it's important to note that that's not just the UC, the University of California system. That could also be the Cal States. Um, But there are a lot of other universities that are publicly funded in the the state of California. Um, But what they did is they took stock of the percentage of students that were at each UC campus, and they decided that system-wide, so not on a specific campus, but across all of the UC campuses, that they wanted there to be a cap where no more than 18% 
of the students in the UC system came from outside of California. Um, and now that includes international students and other U.S. citizens from other states. Um, what they realized, however, is that the most selective schools, the hardest to be admitted to, which, as you mentioned, were in particular uh, UCLA, Berkeley, Irvine, and San Diego, um, in general, had a higher percentage of students that came from other states because they were so selective in their admissions process. So what they did is that they decided that they would cap the number of out-of-state students at where they were um, and also allow other UC campuses to fulfill that mission of serving Californians. So for example, if we look at the fall of 2018, um, Berkeley and UCLA, which are the two most selective, had just over 75% California residents. So about 25% that were international and from other states. UC Merced, however, which is still in the UC system, which is a fantastic school, but a bit less selective, 99.5% were California residents. Um, so it's interesting just to note that within the same system, they are approaching this cap of, you know, no more than 18% of students coming from outside of California, um, looking system-wide, not just one specific campus. Mm-hmm. All right. So there's still, it sounds to me, I want to make sure I understood this. There's still some flexibility where, say, Berkeley or UCLA could go up a little higher if Merced, well, I don't know how much more Merced can take if they're 99.5, but, you know, like, say, you yeah. know, Riverside or something like that. Um, they That does give a little bit of that flexibility to Berkeley and UCLA. To an extent, yes, but they, they are still being challenged to not go above where they are now. So they're being asked to stay at this amount of California residents or more. But yes, um, to stay in that cap system-wide, Riverside, Merced, Santa Cruz, et cetera, are able to help balance that out. Um, one requirement that the state has said, though, is that they 100% can pursue great applicants from other states, admit them. Um, um, and in practice, the degree of selectivity ends up being pretty similar because um, it's less common that a student offered admission from a different state says yes to that offer admission than a student in California. So they end up admitting similarly percentage-wise. But the requirement that the state of California says is that out-of-state applicants that they're going to admit, the wording is they must compare favorably to in-state applications. So they have to be able to say in their holistic evaluation that an out-of-state student they're, that they're admitting vis-a-vis a California resident that they're waitlisting or denying has to be favorable, offering something stronger in their holistic application um, and making sure that they are cautious to, of course, welcome outside applicants while at the same time serving Californians. Mm-hmm. Well, and I have to say that it's kind of interesting, but pretty much the only students that I've had who have applied to the UCs have actually been quite strong. And I know that that that's not probably the case in general. But I think students, I mean, I'm in, located in Connecticut, so I'm on the East Coast. So students who are really willing to go that far away, I think often are stronger students anyway. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. the case across the board, and it's probably not as necessary if you're coming from Nevada, which is re- like closer, you know, if you're in Las Vegas, you're closer to LA than San Francisco is. But mm-hmm. um, I, did, did they have mm-hmm. any data on that or... 
Well, so for instance, if you look at the numbers for 2017, uh, only about 16% of the applicants to UC Berkeley were accepted. So that's extremely selective, regardless of where a student is from. Um, I, I also know that at UCLA, which is similarly selective, they have a lot of students that are also applying to Stanford, to, Stanford, to Ivy League schools, um, to some of the other top-tier public universities around the country. So especially UC Berkeley and UCLA um, and the UC system across the board, they are really seeing some of the nation's top students academically. Um, so I think it's important to remember in California that although a lot of um, press and, and emphasis is put on the top UCs, that there are also a huge array of wonderful Cal State universities, campuses that also provide wonderful four-year degrees. Um, I think we just put a lot of emphasis on these specific campuses because they are so selective. Right. And so as an out-of-state student applying to a Cal State, is it pretty open or is there still an out of, is there still an in-state preference? So it is, it is quite a bit more open than it is for the UCs. Um, a, a, an important difference, though, is that the most of the Cal State applicants, there are some exceptions on certain professional degrees, um, but most Cal State applicants who are from California, if they have a 3.0 GPA or higher from a high school in California, they actually are allowed to apply without standardized test scores. So they have a test-optional pathway if they're GPA from California is 3.0 or above. Out-of-state applicants have to have a 3.5 or higher to be test optional. So although Cal State campuses are often quite accessible to out-of-state applicants, there are some differences in their practices. Um, California high schools actually have their classes and curriculum vetted by the um, educational board in California to make sure that there is a consistency in that educational delivery and quality. So it, it really is a bit more, they know what that California high school degree looks like, and they are much more careful to make sure they're getting a close evaluation of out-of-state out applicants just because there is such a diversity of the U.S. education system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so I don't want to spend all my time on the UCs, although it's a complex <laughs> application yeah. and process. So, But there are other schools. Like, I was wondering if you could kind of, um, you know, a lot of interest in schools like UNC Chapel Hill, UVA, University of Michigan. So do you have a sense about kind of the differences between in-state and out-of-state for, for those three or for some of them? Yeah, so one little side comment I'll make with all of this is that I think that statistics can give us some information, but it's only part of the story. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I'll say is that you can find all of these statistics on um, nationally standardized data where colleges actually have to share on what's called the data set, um, and they put it on their website. So if, if you're ever curious about any state university or private college that you're looking at, you can find all of this. Um, but just know that just just because there's a statistic doesn't necessarily tell you what that means for your student. So it's always good to contact the Office of Admission. Um, but for these schools that you mentioned, um, like UNC Chapel Hill, for instance, I think it's interesting to note that um, for fall of 2018, they had about 61% North Carolina residents enrolling as incoming first-year students. Um, about 22% were out-of-state U.S 
students. The rest were international. Um, one thing I thought was interesting when I was researching this a bit for this segment is that UNC Chapel Hill, actually, as well as the UC system, give priority for transfer applicants to students coming from the North Carolina Community College system. So although they have a lot less North Carolina residents enrolling as first-year students than, let's say, the UC system, they also are saying that, hey, we would like to make sure we give options for North Carolina residents to enroll from community colleges at a later date. Um, But they have a little bit more... um, uh, diversity with 61% coming from North Carolina. Um, I think with um, University of Virginia, this last year they had 69% coming from in-state, 31% from out-of-state. Um, so kind of, you know, again, the, the data tells us a little bit, but it's good to ask questions. I think if you see these statistics, whether you're from the state or out of state, asking the admissions officers if their admissions evaluation is different for in-state versus out-of-state is an important question to ask. Um, For Michigan, they have 46% this last fall from um, out-of-state, 53% from Michigan, so that's a bit more divided. Um, One thing I think is interesting there, though, is that on a financial level, they are really trying to make it affordable for state residents um, through what they call their Blue Guarantee, which is a tuition program for admitted Michigan residents in prioritizing affordability based on different income levels. Um, So those are just a few examples. Um, I also think it's interesting to note that UC Boulder, which I have found on the West Coast to be a pretty popular university for students, regardless of where they're from, they have about a 50-50 blend, 50% coming from from Colorado, 50% out of state, and 10% of their freshmen this year are from California. Um, So I thought that that was an interesting example. If you're a student from anywhere in the country looking for a large public university that has a big variety of where students are coming from, um, and that perhaps is signaling that they are really welcoming applications from different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and actually Boulder, uh, UC Boulder, I was a high school counselor in California and, you know, Boulder and Colorado State would sometimes come visit. You know, they were clearly, clearly recruiting Californians. Mm-hmm. So what Definitely. about any other? And- yeah, go ahead. Well- Oh, I just missed what you said. And I I live in Oregon, and the University of Oregon was awesome at the fairs I attended as a college um, admissions representative in California as well. So I I think that there are, with the large states like California, even though they have, you know, pretty large university systems, there are just a lot of students. (laughs) So, um, you know, looking at places like Boulder, University of Oregon, University of Washington, et cetera, a lot of students are looking at those as options outside of their own state. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think we've run out of time today. There's so we could have talked about a lot more colleges and universities, but uh, but I hopefully we gave people a good overview. I think the main piece of advice that I'm going to give people is if you are interested in these schools, go ahead and apply to them, even if they have tight out of state requirements, but apply early action because that might give you advantages in terms of admission and uh, um, and in terms of financial aid sometimes. 
So now I want to tell you about our show next week. Beth Heaton, the regular host, will be back, and she and her guests will be discussing the wait list, what you should do if you're put on the wait list, and what are the statistics around coming off of it, as well as saving goals for summer jobs. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find past shows li- past shows featuring topics like how to pursue a career in the performing arts and the always popular listener questions. And if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It takes only a moment of your time and it's absolutely free. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern time, 1 p.m. Pacific time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.